Psalms chapter 96. We're in the midst of a series entitled The Mission. Uh, basically, what we're doing is we're taking January and the beginning part of February. We do this every year and we revisit our mission statement as a church. Our mission says that we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. And so I want to I look this morning at Psalm 96. I invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. And we're just going to read this psalm in its entirety. This is a song at the direction of David. It says this, sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord and bless His name. Proclaim His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wondrous works among all peoples. For the Lord is great and highly praised. He is feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name. Bring an offering and enter His courts. Worship the Lord in splendor, in the splendor of His holiness. And let the whole earth tremble before Him. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with His faithfulness. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea of worship as missions. Worship as missions. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be in this place right now. God, this task is too big for any one of us. It's too big for me to proclaim your word. It's too big for my brothers and sisters to hear from your word unless your spirit is at work. And so we ask that the spirit would be at work. I ask that you would give me physical spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Worship as missions. I've used this illustration before, fair warning, um, but it's from a few years ago. And it fits so perfectly that I'm going to use it again. And some of y'all probably don't even, won't even remember that I used it. But on November 23rd, 2014, uh, there was a man named Frederick Winkingson. It's a great last name. Frederick Winkingson. And he walked into the Philadelphia Academy of Music and took a seat in the second row. Now, normally, the Philadelphia Academy of Music is... It's filled with people. It can seat 2,509 people, but for this performance, there was no one else there. Frederick sat for about 10 minutes, waiting, and after about 10 minutes, the lights dimmed, and out walked Bob Dylan. And for the next little while, Frederick was alone in this theater that seats over 2,000 people, being sung to by Bob Dylan. He was serenaded by his favorite artist. And that's a very interesting picture. Because I think in a very real sense, it establishes the precedent for how many of us view our worship. Uh, there's been a saying that continues to make its rounds in Christian circles regarding worship. You may have heard it. It's this idea that as we worship, there is an audience of one. Meaning we are singing to God and God alone and nothing and no one else matters. It's an interesting sentiment. People have turned that very idea into worship songs. Just see contemporary Christian artist uh, Big Daddy Weave, and they have a song that is entitled The Audience of One, all about singing to God and God alone. 
Or you could look at resources like Renewing Worship. It's an online platform geared at worship leaders trying to help cultivate worship in the church, faithful worship. And, and one of their articles is all about an audience of one. And this idea has often been traced back, this idea of an audience of one has been traced back to a Danish philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard lived in the 1800s. He's a very interesting philosopher who has had a profound impact on both philosophy and theology. And in one of his works entitled Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing, he's writing in that book in part to address this consumer mentality when it comes to worship. You know what I mean when I say consumer mentality, don't you? That you walk into this place and it's all about you. What you get, what you receive. I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but think about some of the things we say when we leave church. I've been guilty of it. I really liked that music. It really touched me. This, this worship experience was really shaping for me. And it's this consumer mentality that what we do in here is all about us. And so in a sense, Kierkegaard's trying to push back against that saying, when we gather together to worship God, it's not about you. I think that's a good mantra for the Christian faith, isn't it? It's not about you. And so as Kierkegaard is, is writing, he says this, when we come to worship God, this is his words, when we come to worship God, we generally feel as though the preacher and the other ministers are the performers and God is the subject of the performance and we as the congregation are merely the audience. But this is a terrible misunderstanding of worship. And then he goes on and he says this, authentic Christian worship is just the opposite. We, the congregation, are the performers, the preachers, and other ministers are the directors of the performance, and God is the audience. Now, I understand what Kierkegaard is pushing against. I do. I understand his desire to push back on this consumer mentality that can so easily plague the church, this idea that worship is all about you. An idea that has pervaded so many of our churches that what we do in here is a spectator sport. That we're simply receiving instead of pouring out. But the solution is not to make worship something that it is not. And so I'm going to say this and I hope to defend this throughout the entirety of this sermon. If not, I've done a really bad job this week. Worship is not only for God. Worship is not only for God. Worship is also for those who don't know God. In other words, what I believe Psalm 96 is teaching us is that worship is part of us fulfilling our mission. Again, to remind you one more time, I know y'all are still talking, excited to, to see one another, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it again. I want to remind you of, of our mission this morning. Our mission statement is that we exist to make disciples who show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. Now, in years past, when we've worked through this, this series, we've distinguished between gathering and going as two distinct things. I look back to last year when I, when I taught this sermon series. We spent two weeks on gathering. We spent two weeks on going. And we've, we've typically separated them. But the more I've reflected on on that distinction, the more I'm convinced that it's not always helpful to draw such a harsh distinction between gathering and going. I'm not saying we shouldn't draw that distinction at times. We will draw that distinction at times. I'm just saying we don't always have to. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks in this series is show how our gathering is connected to our going, which is then connected to our gathering, which is then connected to our going, and this, this circular nature of our mission as a church. And we'll see that even this week as we consider how our worship is a part of our mission. And we don't typically think of our worship as part of our mission. But it is a part of our mission of making disciples by gathering and going. Now here at the start, I have to make a big claim. It's a claim that if I can prove, I think will shape our foundation for the weeks to come. Uh, so, so, but I'm going to say it, and then you got to let me explain it, okay? Here it is. I think we as a church need to change our perspective from proclaiming the gospel to promoting the gospel. I think we need to change our perspective and move away, not in totality, but in the broad thinking, and let me explain it, move away from thinking that our mission is just proclaiming the gospel. I think we need to start thinking more about promoting the gospel. Let me, let me explain where this comes from. This idea 
I think ultimately comes from Scripture, but it's, it's really penned well in a book by John Dixon, uh, a book that I've referenced before entitled The Best Kept Secret in Christian Mission. And I want to read to you what he says. It's a couple paragraphs, but it's worth, it's worth reading. He says this, I want to make a distinction between the specific activity of proclaiming the gospel and the broader category of promoting the gospel. The former, so that would be proclaiming the gospel, is properly called evangelism, a word that derives from the New Testament euangelizomai, which only ever means announcing with your mouth good news. But the wider category of promoting the gospel includes any and every activity that draws others to Christ, including, of course, he says, evangelism. And what Dixon goes on to argue is that one of the ways that we promote, there are a few ways we promote the gospel beyond just proclaiming the gospel. We promote the gospel by our worship. We promote the gospel by praying for the salvation of others. We promote the gospel by our good conduct, as it talks about in 1 Peter. We promote the gospel by how we handle our money, how we live our life, that there are multiple avenues through which we can promote the gospel. Dixon goes on and he says this, the concept of promoting the gospel obviously includes evangelism. But it also tries to give a proper place to things like prayer, godly behavior, and the answering for the faith, all of which are explicitly connected in the New Testament with God's plan to save his people. Such activities are not separate from the work of the gospel. They are supportive of it and vital to it. So let me paraphrase what he's saying and explain why I think this is a helpful way for us to view this. I promise we'll get to our text, but we've got to lay a foundation, okay? I've, I mean, this is, we're setting the stage for like a month. Here's what Dixon's arguing, and I believe he's right, or I wouldn't have brought it up. God's plan of redemption, of saving people, utilizes many things to draw them to himself. Now, Dixon would agree, and I agree with him, that eventually the gospel has to be spoken. It has to. I want to be clear about that. No one will know that Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, though he was not a sinner, was crucified and raised from the dead. No one will know that because I'm, I'm nice to them. At some point, we have to speak the gospel, but the Bible really supports this idea that part of the means God uses to draw people to him are other things other than proclaiming the gospel. And I wonder, I wonder if part of the reason that we've not seen more fruit with our pursuit of our mission at Newbury Church could partially be be because we have too narrow understanding of what it means to be on mission. Now, here's why I think that this idea of promoting the gospel is helpful. Again, just, I feel like I'm going to say this a lot. I'm not saying we shouldn't share the faith. I'm going to get to that in a minute. We should share our faith. We've got to see there are other ways that the Lord can use us to fulfill the mission of Newbury Church. But let me give you a few reasons why I think this is a helpful way to think about it. First, it highlights the collective nature of our mission. This idea of promoting the gospel highlights the collective nature of our mission. See, we have to remember this. This is a very significant truth, very significant theological truth for for most of us who have grown up in an individualistic Western society. Listen to me. God is first and foremost saving a people, not a person. God is first and foremost saving a people, not a person. Even when you go back to the covenant God made with Abraham in Genesis 12, what does he say in Genesis 12 too? And I will make you into a great nation. God is creating a people through which his glory will be manifested to the world. He doesn't say to Abraham, now you have faith, go save everybody. He establishes a people through which his glory will be made known. Who is that people? Well, it's Israel. And now in the New Testament, the mission that we have inherited from Israel is to be God's people, a collective body of believers, Christ's bride, the church. Listen, there's this doctrine about election. I believe in election. But when you hear most Western theologians talk about the doctrine of election, they're only talking about whether or not a person is elected. But the ethos of Scripture has very little to do with the election of a person. It's the election of a people who has got elected The church, the church to be the means through which his glory is manifested in the world. But here's why this is so beautiful. When we think about the collective nature of our mission, it means you as an individual don't have to do everything in our mission. We as a church have to do everything in our mission. 
I mean, think about what Romans 12, verses 4 and 5 says. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Let me give you the Michael translation of what Paul's saying right there. A hand is not called to do what a foot does. And a foot is not called to do what an ear does. The beauty of the collective nature of God's people is that not one person has to do it all. But this leads to the second reason that I think this idea of promoting the gospel is a more healthy way to think through our mission than only proclaiming the gospel. Second reason is this. It honors specific giftings in the Bible. Let me explain. I believe this. One thing I believe that has been a hindrance to the church, a hindrance to the church, is telling every church member they are an evangelist. Here's why. Because that gifting is a specific gifting to the church. Ephesians 4.11, and he himself, that's Christ, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now listen, just because we are all called to be willing to share our faith does not mean we are all called to be evangelists. Just like every one of you is commanded to teach the truth of the Bible, y'all aren't all pastors. And we have to distinguish between the role and the function. And here's the thing, not all of you are evangelists. I'm going to shoot you straight, Newbreaks, I love you and I've known you for quite some time. Not most of you are evangelists. But it does not mean that you should not be proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It also means that if we call everybody an evangelist, we are stripping away the gifting that God has specifically given to people in this church who are actually called to lead us in evangelism. And there are people in this church who are gifted as evangelists. If you don't Maybe I'll come tell you who I think you are if you don't know. You see, by calling everyone an evangelist, we are doing two things. One, we are diminishing the God-given gift of an evangelist to the body by ignoring those who are specifically called to be evangelists. And two, we are putting a burden on everyone else that God has not gifted them to fulfill. If I am telling you that you are an evangelist and God has not gifted you to be an evangelist, then I am putting a burden on you that you will never be able to fulfill. Because the only reason we do, we are able to do what God has called us to do is because God has equipped us to do it. I don't stand up here and preach to you every week primarily because I've been to seminary, because I'm working on a doctorate, because I got really good at techniques and skills. It's because God has gifted me to do this. And if God ever takes that gifting away from me, fire me. Because my ability won't be enough to sustain. It won't. Now, I want to make a caveat. To be crystal clear, some of you, I'm tempted to believe, just heard, this is awesome. Pastor Michael just said, I don't have to share the gospel. <laughs> that is not what I said. Amen. I just said, you're not an evangelist. I believe scripture calls every one of us to be ready and able to give a defense for the hope that we have. In other words, everyone should be able to share the gospel and talk about their hope in Christ. And if we can't, we should strive to learn how to do it better. But I am saying that not every one of you is primarily tasked with the role of an evangelist as the means by which this church will fulfill its mission. Some of you won't be an evangelist as the primary way we promote the gospel. And that's not how God wired some of you. And that's a good thing. Because the body needs more than just evangelists. Some of you are gifted in acts of mercy. Some of you are gifted as prayer warriors. And those evangelists need you praying for the salvation of the people that they're going after, right? We need one another in this mission. Some of you, God has gifted you with the discipline of healthy worship. And as we will see in just a minute, worship is part of the mission. I'll be transparent with you. My gifting is not evangelism. I, I am not gifted as an evangelist. I know this about myself. I've tried. I've tried to be, I've, Lord, make me an evangelist. I see guys that are really good at evangelism. Pastor Michael is really good at evangelism. 
It's not me. I wish I was. So I'm just going to stick with being a better preacher than you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. My gifting is not evangelist, but I, th- I think I know what the Lord has gifted me with. I think he's called me and gifted me with the ability to preach and to teach. And I think I got a little bit of the prophetic sprinkled in there. And it's okay that my gifting is not as an evangelist because Newbury Church has evangelists. It's okay that you're not gifted to be the pastor of Newbury because Newbury has healthy pastors. And it doesn't mean that God can't change gifts. I'm not saying the gift that you have now is the gift that you will have for your entire life. There was a time when I was not gifted to be a pastor. But the Lord will gift and equip the body as the body needs to fulfill the mission. And what I'm trying to get at is the body needs you to use the gifts that God has given you. Which means you don't have to be jealous of somebody else's gifts. You don't have to fake for other gifts. You can use what God has given you to make much of his glory and to fulfill our mission of making disciples by showing off Christ where life exists. As we gather around the gospel and go with the gospel. What I'm trying to say is you are valuable to this body. Doesn't matter if you're a foot, if you're a finger, if you're a toe, if you're an ear, you are valuable. When I think about my body, there's not one piece of it I want gone. I like it all. Some of it I wish might be a little tighter, but all right. So that's the foundation I want to lay, and we'll see it play out over these next few weeks as we think about some other areas of fulfilling our mission. But you tracking with me on that? You can argue with me about it later, but are you at least tracking with me? All right, so what I want us to see this morning is that our worship is a means of promoting the gospel. Our worship is a means by which we fulfill that mission statement that we have written down on paper, that we have taken from the Bible and just put in a different order. Our gathering is part of our going. Our worship is missions. Let me try to show you from Psalm 96. I want to pull a couple. Man, I've been at it for 20 minutes. Okay, I want to pull out a couple of significant sections of this psalm for you. Here's the first. I want you to see the what of worship. The what of worship. The psalm begins with these words. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His wondrous works among all peoples. So what we are doing when we worship are these three things that are mapped out in these first three verses. There are a few verbs there. Did you catch them? We sing, we declare, we proclaim. So let's look at those three things. David says, sing, sing a new song to the Lord. You know, Psalm 96 is a very interesting psalm. The reason it's interesting is because it's a psalm that's quoted from another part of Scripture. So Psalm 96, 97, 98, and Psalm 100 are all pulled from 1 Chronicles 16. They are a reshaping of the song that was sung at David's direction when the Ark of the Covenant came to Jerusalem and the tabernacle was dedicated on Mount Zion. That's, that's what's going on in, in 1 Chronicles 16. And, and this is why it's significant. The tabernacle was the place the Ark of the Covenant rested. It was a portable sanctuary, if you will, where the Ark could dwell. And the Ark of the Covenant held the tablets with the Mosaic law inscribed on them. The ark was the very presence of God with the people of God. And so as David dedicates this tabernacle for the first time in Jerusalem, he is dedicating the place where the glory of God would dwell among his people. And so as part of his worship, David declares, sing to the Lord a new song. And the reason David says that is because God was doing something new among his people. Do you know what the beautiful truth is this morning? God is still doing something new among his people. Because every day, God's mercies are new for you. I love what the Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner notes where he says this new song, it's not simply a piece of newly composed or it's not simply a piece newly composed, though it naturally includes such, but it is a response that will match the freshness of his mercies, which are new every morning. Brothers and sisters, please hear me as you consider this idea of your singing and your worship. Every day you wake up because God's mercies are new for you. The reason you woke up this morning, the reason you woke up this morning and you're not in hell 
is because God's mercies were new for you today. The reason that God's hand has not departed from you is because God's mercy is new today. The reason we are able to gather in this place, sing songs to our God, cry to him in prayer. The reason we can lift high the great name of our matchless king, despite the fact that every one of us is unworthy, is because his mercy is new today. And if God's mercy is new today, then you, you better sing a new song of praise. We worship God because he is a God who is constantly working among his people. But notice this. He says in verse 2, proclaim. So not only do we sing, but we proclaim. He says, sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Here it is. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. What are we proclaiming in worship? The emphasis, track with me, is not on the stuff that God has given you. The emphasis is not on whether or not your day is going well. The emphasis is on the fact that our God provides salvation. What we are declaring in our worship and out of our worship is that we serve a God who saves. We are proclaiming first and foremost, not that God has given us full checking accounts. Not that God has given us all the earthly toys we have asked for. Not that God has given us job security or the American dream. We bless his name and proclaim his salvation. The fact that though we were sinners and had rebelled against God, he loved us so much that he sent Jesus to live the life that you and I were called to live and we fail at every turn. He's the only one who didn't deserve punishment, and yet he willingly went to the cross to die for you and for me. He didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead three days later. And we have an invitation because the tomb is empty to place our faith in Jesus, to turn away from our sins and run after God and find hope and salvation and life. Again, not because we're worthy, but because God's just that good. And so we proclaim that goodness as we proclaim the Lord's salvation. But notice it says, from day to day. See, this is not a proclaiming that's relegated to the church gathering alone. The pattern of our lives has to be one of proclaiming his salvation. It's almost as if we proclaim and worship our God who saves, and we do this where life exists. Some of y'all got it. But finally, he says, declare. So we sing, we proclaim, we declare. Look at verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations. His wondrous works among all peoples. Here it is. That makes my case. The Bible made it for me. Your worship is not just about you and God. It is a means of showing him off among the nations. And if we're going to show him off among the nations, it means the nations have to see what we're doing. They have to hear what we're singing. They have to pay attention to what we're proclaiming and declaring. God is the object, he is the focus, but we have his glory spreading in mind. Our worship as the collective people of God is not meant to be private. It is not meant to be private. So let me, let me speak to this for a second. If this is true, it ought to... It ought to at least, at the bare minimum, force us to think about how we approach the gathering of the body. Let me, let me say it like this. If a means of us fulfilling the mission is gathering together collectively as the people of God and singing praises to our God, it kind of pushes us not to see this as an optional thing. Right? Like, there's a huge discussion going on right now, right? It came up, some of y'all, I was at my last doctoral seminar this past week, and we had to read a book called Virtual Reality Church about how the church should use virtual and augmented reality in promoting better worship services. And I'm sitting here reading this, and I'm thinking through this, and there's a part of me that just kept coming back to Psalm 96, probably because I knew I was going to preach it, and I was like, how do we do that on a screen? How do people see us worship behind a computer? Right? Like, like I'm just going to tell you, online services is not an acceptable substitute for Psalm 96 worship. It cannot accomplish what can be accomplished when the people of God gather together and they cry out together and they dance together and they yell together and they celebrate together. They've had good weeks and bad weeks. They've had loss and joys. And we come together and say, even though all of our circumstances is different, our God is worthy of worship. So maybe we should prioritize this time. 
I'm not picking on you. Listen, if you're sick, stay home. Please, stay home. Nobody wants to share your sickness with you. I understand life happens and things come up. Sometimes you got to go to the hospital. I get it. But what I am saying is maybe we got to think about how we schedule vacations in the gathering of, of the church if it's that important. Maybe. I'm not saying don't take vacations. Please. I'm not, I'm not trying to lay another law on you. I'm just saying maybe we got to think about it. Right? Maybe if we can miss one Sunday instead of two, we miss one Sunday instead of two, and we schedule our vacation like that. If this is really a means of declaring the glory of God among the nations, why would we want to be anywhere else? I'm going to move on so I don't get in trouble. That's, that's the what of our worship. We sing. We declare. We proclaim. But let me draw your attention to this next. I want you to see the why of worship. The why of worship. So look again at verses 4 through 6. It says, for the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. But the Lord made the heavens. One more time, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Oh, there's so much weight in these three verses. See, in the first three verses, we saw that we sing a new song because of God's new mercies. We proclaim his salvation as a people who have experienced his salvation. We declare his glorious glory and wondrous works among the people. Those speak to the degree of our worship, but they are not the foundation of our worship. What is the foundation of our worship? What is the ultimate why? Track with me here. The ultimate why is not first that God is merciful. The ultimate why is not first that God saves. It is not first that God has, continues to do wondrous works. We worship God for those things. They shape the degree of our worship. But the foundation of our worship is not what God does. The foundation of our worship is the fact that God is. I mean, look at what the psalmist writes in verse 5. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. I, I think you picked up on it. I said it a bunch. But the Lord made the heavens. It goes back to what we talked about last week, the truth contained in the first words of our mission statement. We exist. The foundation of our worship is the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created. We talked about if you can make it past that, the rest of the book's easy. If we can buy into the fact that there is a God who exists, it demands that we worship. It all ties back even in this psalm. Right? Why, as verse 1 says, does the whole earth sing to the Lord? Because the Lord made the heavens. Why, as verse 7 says, do the families of the people ascribe glory to the Lord? Because the Lord made the heavens. Why, as verse 10 says, do that we say among the nations the Lord reigns? Because the Lord made the heavens. Why are the heavens glad and does the earth rejoice? Because the Lord made the heavens. Why does the sea and all that's in it resound with praise? Because the Lord made the heavens. Why do the fields and everything in them celebrate? Because the Lord made the heavens. We worship because in the beginning God and if this God who exists creates then everything he creates ought to resound his glory and so we worship the foundation of our worship church is not that God has done anything for you it is simply that God is God and if indeed that is true that in the beginning God it means that all the other things we are tempted to worship are worthless idols because they are not him. Think of the implications of this for just a minute. I mean, this is wild. It means that even if God wouldn't have saved you, now we praise God for his salvation. It adds degrees to our worship. But even if God wouldn't have saved you, he is still right to demand your worship. Because he made you. What this means then is that you never have a reason not to worship because there is never a moment that God is not God. But the beauty of all of it is that the God who is, is a good God. He is a good God. That's all the more reason to worship because the God who is happens to be for us and not against us. So hear me, that means that our worship cannot, be, cannot solely be dependent on what is going on in our lives. 
It means that when you walk in here on Sunday, when you are at your job on Monday, when you are with your friends on Tuesday, when the doctor calls with the bad news on Wednesday, when your car breaks down on Thursday, when your plans fall through on Friday, and when your soul is weary on Saturday, it doesn't matter the season, it doesn't matter the moment, it doesn't matter the situation, we still worship because God is. But that's good news, church. The reason it's good news is because if your worship is dependent on your situation, it's a fickle worship. Because I don't know if you know, I know we got a young church, right? Y'all looking healthy, young. Yeah. (laughs) Healthy and young. But I'm going to tell you, your health can be stripped away in a moment. Can it, Pastor? Your life can be snatched away in a moment. Your family can be snatched away in a moment. God forbid. Your toys can be snatched away in a moment. Your comfort. And if your worship of God is dependent solely on what he has done, then your worship will fail the moment you don't have what you want. But if your worship is built on the truth that God is, it means bring it on. You can strip away my life. You can strip away my family. You can strip away my toys and my comfort and my security. But if I've got God, I've got enough, and I'm going to sing a song. We build our worship on the fact that God is. The bonus is that God is good. I wanted to say even if he wasn't good, we'd still worship. I don't even have a category for it because all I know is a good God. And know this, I'm not saying then that worship demand that you act like everything is all right. You can come into this place beat down and still worship. And it doesn't mean you'll leave and not still be beat down. But your God is still God. And so you worship. What I'm trying to get at is the reason we worship is not first and foremost because of what God has done or may do or can do. Our hope is in the fact that God is, that the Lord created the heavens. But again, the good news is that the God who is is a good God. So if your life isn't looking like you want it at the moment, I'm going to encourage you, go ahead and keep praising because the God you're praising is still a good God. He's never led you into a valley that he didn't intend to lead you up. He's never taken you up on a mountain that he wasn't going to bring you down. But he'll be with you every step of the way because God sits on his throne and God is. And sometimes, church, it's our worship in the midst of pain, not in its absence, that can have the most profound impact on the nations. This leads to the third and final thing I want you to see. I want you to see the results of worship. So we saw the what of worship. We saw the why of worship. Now let me tell you the result of worship. You could technically just, I don't think I put up there which verses it was. You can just say seven through the end of the chapter, but I want to look at seven through nine real quick. It says, ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let the whole earth tremble before him. Here it is. Pay attention. The result of worship is not only that God gets the glory, but that more people will worship. Now, this is a fascinating progression that I don't want you to miss in Psalm 96. I mean, I want you to see this. What is Psalm 96? It is a worship song to be sung by the people of God. That's what the Psalter is. That's what the Psalms are. It's the worship hymnal of God's people. It's the top 150 hits in Israel in the day. They're all chart toppers. These were sung by the people of God. So watch this. This is crazy. Watch this. The author is writing a song of worship, calling other people to worship so that more people will worship. His song of worship is calling other people to worship so that more people will worship. I mean, it's literally an invitation to worship so that everybody else can worship. And the result of this worship is more worship. 
I mean, we see it in the text when the psalmist says, ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. This is fascinating because up until this point, he's been talking about Israel. But the phrase families of peoples is designating the Gentiles. So in verse 7, he's moved from Israel to the people they're worshiping in front of. And he's telling those people who saw their worship to now take their worship to go show other people more worship. Come on, church. I mean, you can't tell me that worship isn't missional. You can't tell me it's meant to be private. I mean, he's talking initially to Israel, calling them to worship so that more people will worship and then take that worship into the world. The praise of God's people is a means by which other people, those not in the family of God, can become partakers in the worship of God. I mean, this is literally the way that the temple was built in Israel, was for this purpose. I mean, think about when Solomon built the temple, right? I'll I'll give you a little history lesson. So Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8, okay? And he spends some time praying over the temple. And he asks God that this would be a place where Israel truly worships the Lord. He spends some time blessing the Lord, praying for Israel. But then he prays this in 1 Kings 8, verses 41 through 43. Even for the foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. For they will hear of your great name, your strong hand, your outstretched arm, and will come and pray toward this temple. May they hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all the foreigners ask. Then all peoples of the earth will know your name to fear you as your people Israel do and know that this temple I have built bears your name name. The temple was constructed in such a way that Gentiles could hear the praise of Israel, that they could audibly hear the praise of Israel. There was a designated place on the temple grounds called the court of the Gentiles. It's actually the place where Jesus got a little irritated because they turned the court of the Gentiles, which should have been the place where people were hearing about their worship into den of thieves. Remember? Jesus flips over some tables because the court of the Gentiles was a place where the world should be able to come and hear God's people praise him and in turn start praising God themselves. As Israel worshipped, their worship was to affect those who were listening to their worship. So much so that those that were listening would then take that worship into the nations. That's why even in our mission statement it says we exist to make disciples who those disciples Show off Christ where life exists by gathering around the gospel and going with the gospel. My job isn't to just prepare you as disciples. It's to prepare you to make more disciples so that those disciples will continue to make more disciples and take the praise of our glorious God among the nations. I mean, Psalm 96.10 says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. Our worship is part of our mission. Now, I just have to say this. If this is true, it should also force us to consider what our gathered worship looks like. Mm, I was hesitant to go here. I'm just going to go here and you can wrestle with it later. So many of our churches, I would argue even ours at times, have tamed worship so much that it has lost its missional effectiveness. I just call it like I see it. I don't know if the people of God back then would have any idea of what to make of us standing still, staring at a screen, barely mouthing some words. I just don't know. And I get it. I've heard the response from some of you. I'm not picking on anybody. I don't remember who has told me this response. Please, I'm not. It's just that's just not how I'm wired. Just not wired to be excited. I'm just not wired to be expressive. Maybe then the spiritual discipline you need to work on isn't evangelism. Maybe it's worship. Because worship is meant to be expressive. It's meant to be visible. It's meant to be audible. It's meant to be loud. It's meant to be filled with shouts. It's meant to be filled with tears. It's meant to be filled with hands raised. It's meant to be falling on your face before the God. This isn't just me, right? That's Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with a jubilant cry. That's Psalm 95, 6. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord, our maker. 
That's Psalm 149.3. Let let's praise his name with dancing and make music to him with a tambourine and a lyre. Worship is meant to be expressive, but please hear me. I'm not calling you to be expressive for expressive sake. That's fake. That's pharisaical. Don't force it. But what I am saying is that if God truly is God, if God truly has saved you and pulled you from the pit of death and given you marvelous life in Jesus, it ought to do something in your soul. It ought to stir some emotion. For some of you, that might mean dancing before Jesus. For some of you, it might just mean raising your hands. For some of you, it might mean actually singing the songs of praise. I'm just trying to tell you, I'm not mad at you. God is worthy of our worship, and the world needs to hear it. They need to see it. They need to feel it. Because maybe, just maybe, it will be that worship that God uses to draw the nations to himself. We worship because God is worthy, and he is so worthy. Our worship is part of our mission. It's part of how we proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'm not saying worship in place of evangelism. I'm saying worship as a means of evangelism. The result of our worship ought to be that people see, they hear, and they want to worship that God too. A God who is worthy when everything is going well. And a God who is still worthy when the bottom falls out. I know it's true. I'm I'm wrapping up. I know it's true. Because in a very real sense, that's my testimony, that it was the worship of God's people that drew me to him. I grew up in a Christian home. Some of y'all have met my parents before. I grew up in a Christian home. Wasn't sheltered. They weren't those kind of parents. But my parents were always singing, especially my dad. Always singing something. I sing some of those songs to my kids. Every night, I sing Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. I sing it to my kids because my mom sang it to me. I remember going to church. I didn't understand everything that was happening at church as a little kid. You might think I'm a preacher. It was the preaching that got me. It wasn't the preacher. I had some boring preachers, man. (laughs) But there was one thing that always captivated my attention. I didn't understand it. It was the people of God singing to God. There was something different about their songs and how they sang them. It wasn't singing like in the car when the radio's on and that song's bopping. It wasn't that. I remember seeing... Parents who had lost children still singing. I remember that we just had a prayer request for that person and they're still singing. In the joys and the sorrows, there were people still singing and it was the music of the church that drew me in. So I wanted to hear the gospel message because there was something peculiar about those people. There was something peculiar about my parents. There still is. But it was the worship from God's people that drew me in to want to know more about this God. Don't tell me that worship isn't mission. It's my story. So let me give you one simple application. We've gone over time. Let me just give you one application. I believe it could be a game changer for our mission as a church. Probably the simplest application I've ever given you. You ready for it? Invite somebody to church. No, no, I'm serious. Invite somebody to church. Let them see what it looks like when God's people sing and they proclaim and they declare the glory of God. They declare the glory of God when their week has been chaos and nothing has gone right and still that God is on his throne. Let them see what it looks like when you triumph in life and you don't take the credit because you praise a God who is for you and not against you. And I know I know some of you are worried right now as I say that. What if they don't like it? What if they don't like the songs we sing? What if that pastor yells too much? What if they think our church is too different? What are they going to think of meeting in a gym? What are they going to think about the fact that we got to constantly find chairs? What if they think we're strange? Listen, 
That's not your problem to work out. It never has been. Invite them. Encourage them to come. And then worship in front of them and see what God does. And maybe one of our evangelists will catch up with them as they're walking out the door. Oh, no, no, no. No, I'm serious. That's the beauty of the body. Maybe one of them will catch up to them and tell them the gospel that they need to hear. And it was your praise that softened their hearts by the Spirit's power. Sociology professor Rodney Stark has spent his lifetime studying the church. Started documenting it in 1960. He's been studying how churches engage their communities and how people come to be a part of the family of God. In 2003, he did an article for Christianity Today where he summed up much of that 40, almost 45 years of research. You know what he noticed? Churches that were engaging their community and seeing real growth through conversion, not just church swapping. It wasn't that they had big budgets in common. It wasn't that they owned their own buildings. Praise God. It wasn't that they had incredible programs and youth ministries and kids ministries. It wasn't that they had magnificent outreach programs. They all had one thing in common. Do you know what it was? Their people just invited their neighbors to church and then worshiped Jesus the same way when they showed up. And that has been one of the dominating factors for churches engaging their communities. You and I have a reason to worship. We have a reason to worship to an incredible degree because not only does God exist, but God has saved you. The same gospel that when you rebelled against God, rather than abandon you and send you straight to hell, he loved you so much that he sought to redeem you. And while we were enemies, he made us his friend. By sending Jesus to live the life we should have lived, die the death that we deserve to die, to raise victoriously from the grave and conquer sin, death, and hell, provide a way for us to be made right with God. You have a reason to worship. So here's my charge as I'm done. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples.